Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, as an act of worship, we have come to listen to your word. We pray now, Lord, that you'd calm our minds, our spirits. Lord, set us in a place where we're open to the voice of the Spirit, even through such an imperfect vessel as myself. We pray, Lord, that Jesus would be seen as greater and greater, seen as who he really is, who he claimed himself to be. And as we see him in such an elevated position as John writes about him, I pray that our trust in Jesus would be greater and greater as well. It's in his name we ask. Amen. I read a news article about a British teenager named George Garrett who changed his name to 13 words, 13 names. This is what he called himself. He legally changed his name. Captain Fantastic, Faster Than Superman, Spider-Man, Batman, Wolverine, Hulk, and The Flash combined. That's his name. Now, the news article said that he's been getting beat up a lot lately (laughs) by his peers. And when I read that, I said, duh. I mean, kids react to anything that is strange or different. Besides that, when anybody makes outlandish claims about themselves that aren't really true, you can expect controversy. Jesus made some pretty outlandish claims about himself. He said, as we have already seen last week, he said that he had the same nature as God the Father. He claimed that as God, he should be honored in the same way as God the Father. And he said that he would judge the world and raise the dead. He said all of those things about himself, outlandish claims. At least that's what his enemies thought they were. They would accuse him for blasphemy, and that would lead to his crucifixion ultimately. But there's a big difference between George Garrett of England and Jesus Christ. You see, George Garrett just pulled all those names out of a hat and decided to call himself those things. What Jesus, however, claimed to be, he proved that he was by healing people, by walking on water, turning water into wine, by raising dead people, and by his own personal resurrection. Now what he does in the paragraph we're about to read is he looks toward the future. And keep something in mind. All of this is a response to the leaders who have gathered around him and are accusing him because in their view he has broken the Sabbath. He didn't break God's Sabbath. He broke their petty little traditional regulations that they added on to the Sabbath, but he didn't break it at all. So what he does is he launches into a monologue about who he is. And he continues on that vein. He now turns toward the future and he looks at things that will be common to every single person. And there's three basic things. You may not have an outline in your bulletin, but the the outline is simple. Here it is. Everyone dies. 
Everyone is evaluated and everyone rises. That's what Jesus says. Everyone dies, everyone is evaluated, and everyone rises. I want you to think about this. A lot of people, this blows their mind. Every single person who has ever been born is going to live forever. Ever. In, in one sense, every single person has eternal life in the sense that they continue consciously to live forever. So the big issue isn't, will I live forever? Will I have eternal life? The issue is, where will I live forever? How will I spend everlasting life? And once again, Jesus has this way of taking every single human being and putting them in one of two camps. And we notice that as we look at verse 25 through 29. Let's look at it together. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to judge or to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Rutgers University in New Jersey decided to host a class in their college It was called Death and the Afterlife. What kind of interest do you think they would have in a class called Death and the Afterlife? Well, they were surprised because they had to cap it off at 100 when 400 people almost immediately signed up to find out what happens after death. 400 people immediately, first semester, but they had to limit it to 100 Now, in the verses that we read, you'll notice that Jesus talks about two possibilities, ultimately, the resurrection to life and the resurrection to condemnation. He, in effect, speaks about heaven and the other place that nobody likes to talk about. It's fascinating to me how loosely people will play with that word, hell, and not really give it so much thought. In fact, even playfully, you've heard it every day. One author, John Brown, writes this. It's not unlikely that within the last 24 hours you have heard someone say, what in the hell are you doing? Or, I sure as hell will. Or, who in the hell do you think you are? The word hell, writes this author, has become a controversial byword in our day. Good friends even dare to say playfully to one another, go to hell. They surely don't mean go to the place of punishment for the wicked after death, though that is how the dictionary defines the word hell. But why use the word hell? Why not instead say, what the jail are you doing? Or, well, I sure as school will... Or why not say, go to Chicago? (laughs) I heard that. If hell really is the place for eternal punishment for the wicked after death, then how come it's used 
so lightly millions and millions of times each day? Why is there such an apparent lack of seriousness about that word? Why is a word so heavy with meaning used so indifferently? Why do people pretend that the place doesn't exist? Well, you need to know Jesus didn't pretend it didn't exist. In fact, Jesus Christ spoke more about hell than any other person in all of the Bible. Why did he speak so much about it? He must have seen its existence and knew exactly what was going on there. And so as to warn people, he brings this up. Now keep in mind, this is a confrontation he's having with these religious elite of Jerusalem. And uh, with every word, with every sentence, he presses further who he claims he is. But there's three great facts of life I want us to consider this morning based on the words of Jesus. Number one, everyone dies. Number two, everyone will be evaluated. And number three, everyone will rise. The first, we don't need the Bible to tell us everyone dies. We can look around and we can figure that out. But just notice in our text, verse 25, the word dead. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. The word dead is necros. We get the medical term necrosis. Um, When blood starves a tissue, when uh, cells in an organ are damaged, there is a necrotic tissue that develops, the death of a tissue. It speaks of physical death. And then verse 28, notice the word graves. Do not marvel at this. The hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. And that word is the very specific word for the place like a tomb or sepulchre where people are buried. We would say a cemetery. A cemetery is where dead people are buried. Or as I used to say when I was a kid, look, Mom, there's the cemetery. It's where all the dead people live. Everyone dies. Two people per second die. 102 people a minute, 6,136 an hour die. Rich, poor, young, old, male, female, famous, obscure, everyone will die. The only exception to that will be at the rapture of the church when those who are alive and remain will be caught up and instantly transformed. Other than that, everyone dies. And our death rate is a problem to the governments of this world. Because the more people we get on earth, governments, especially in big cities, realize we're running out of space to bury the dead. I read about an article in Brazil, where the government there, the local government, hired an architect to help solve this problem. And the architect designed a 39-story skyscraper, a necropolis, that would be able to house 147,000 corpses. That's the place where all the dead people live, honey. Can you imagine seeing that in your town? But... We also know something about life and death from a biblical perspective. When the Bible uses those terms, it doesn't always mean literally, physically. It sometimes means spiritually. In fact, sometimes those terms, spiritual life, spiritual death, spiritual birth, and physical death, physical life, are intermeshed together sometimes in the same conversation or paragraph. And so it is here in verse 24, Jesus says... Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes, 
that can only be an alive person, only people alive can believe, in him who sent me has present tense everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now, those are spiritual conditions. Because the New Testament describes people born into this world as being spiritually dead in need of life being imparted to them. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you he has made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. So when you come to Jesus Christ, there is sort of a spiritual resurrection that happens as God imparts life to a dead soul. It's that spiritual resurrection that ensures the physical resurrection of verse 29, what Jesus calls the resurrection of life. Now, I know you've heard the old saying that there's two things that are inevitable, death and taxes. Death and taxes. I heard one person say, well, that may be true, that death and taxes um, are inevitable, but death doesn't seem to get worse every time Congress meets. Taxes do. Well, that may be so, but death can be worse. Death can be worse if after death you meet a holy God and you are unprepared to do so because you have no spiritual life within you. That would be worse than just dying Everyone dies. That's implicit in the text. Number two, everyone is evaluated. The word judgment comes up. Go back to verse 22. This is where Jesus first introduced this in the monologue. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. See the word judgment? It's the Greek word krisis. We get the word crisis from it. There is a coming crisis, Jesus would say. And what a crisis that will be, the coming judgment. Now look at verse 27. Same thought. He picks it up again and amplifies it. And he has given to him, that is the Father, God the Father has given him, God the Son, authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. So, contrary to what most people think in the world, Death does not end it all. I know that's how people sort of live. Well, you know, you live and then you die. And then after death, there's nothing. Taint so. After you die, there is an evaluation. There's a ruling. There's a verdict that is rendered by the God of this universe. As it says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it is appointed for men to die once. But after this comes the judgment. Now, you know what? I think I can say this, and I think I'm right, I'm I'm safe to say it. The doctrine of divine judgment is probably the most neglected teaching there is, both outside the church and inside the church. Outside the church, nobody believes it. Inside the church, it's pretty much just ignored. Now, if I were to talk about God is father, and God is friend, and God is helper, the one who forgives us of our failures and our failings and our sins, which is true. You see smiles come on the face and heads nod up and down, and people light up and go, yeah! But 
if one dares to speak about God as the final judge who will evaluate every life and render an eternal verdict, and God is the judge to whom we are all accountable, you see a very different reaction. You see brows furrow, lips pucker, heads wag this way, because to many people it is repelling and unacceptable to view God as such. Here's the problem. If you don't think God is a judge, you've got to throw away a good portion of the Bible. Because God's judgment is seen as a thread throughout the Bible. In fact, just a, a quick rendering of it as I studied this week, the word judgment occurs 190 times in Scripture and all of its form, judge, judge, judgment, judging, when applied to God, 450 times. Here's a thumbnail sketch. God judged Adam and Eve after they fell in the garden, kicking them out of the garden and pronouncing a curse on them and all of humanity. Then... God judged the entire world at the time of Noah and sent a flood to destroy all of mankind. Then God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, engulfing them in a volcanic catastrophe. Then God judged Egypt with ten plagues to get the children of Israel to get out. And then God judged people among the children of Israel for worshiping the golden calf. And God judged people like... um, Uh, Nadab and Abihu and uh, Dathan and Korah and Achan. And then eventually God judged the entire northern kingdom of Israel by sending them into Assyrian captivity, 722 B.C. And a few years later, 586 B.C., all of the southern kingdom of Judah in Babylonian captivity. Now I know some of you are thinking, yeah, but that's just the God of the Old Testament, not the God of the New Testament. Well, keep reading. Read about Jesus who judged Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida, those three cities around Galilee, saying it will be more tolerable for you in the day of judgment than for Sodom and Gomorrah, because he had essentially been in their presence, in their midst, and they had seen his miracles and heard his words and did not repent. Then Jesus stands on the Mount of Olives and judges Jerusalem, because they didn't recognize the time of the coming of their Messiah. And he predicted with tears in his eyes the coming destruction in 70 A.D. And it doesn't end there. You turn to the book of Acts, and there were two people in the church, believers, Ananias and Sapphira. They were judged by God, killed dead physically. They had to carry their bodies out because of their hypocrisy. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul seems to say that God judges those who are irreverent at the Lord's Supper, saying some are sick and some have died rendering that as a judgment of God. Now get this. All of those little examples that I just gave, those are just intermediate examples of judgment. That's an intermediate judgment. It's not the big one. You know, in California, they've had some earthquakes, but they always talk about the big one. Jesus here talks about the big one, the really big eternal final judgment when he mentions this, this kind of judgment. Now, I have a question. Why is Jesus the one who will judge? He says that twice. In fact, it's not the only time in the Bible this is brought up. But Jesus says very plainly, and I found it interesting. 
He wants us to know that the Father himself won't be the eternal judge, that he's committed all of that to Jesus Christ, the Son. Why? Well, I think we have the answer right here in the text. Look at verse 25. In verse 25, Jesus speaks of his power to give life. And when he does so, he calls himself what? Verse, John chapter 5, verse 25. That's where we're at. He calls himself the Son of God. When he speaks about his power to give life, he refers to himself as the Son of God. But look at verse 27. When he speaks of his power to judge, he refers to himself as what? Son of man. Isn't that interesting? It's as if, I believe, Jesus is saying, because I, as God, became man, I now have the right and the authority to judge man. Something else I studied a little bit further. Uh, Eighty-three times the term Son of Man is used in all four Gospels, and it is usually used in reference to the cross, the place where God judged the sin of mankind. So perhaps it would be even better to say that Jesus was in effect saying, because I am the one who was judged for the sin of others, I am the only one qualified to judge others. So all of the judgment has been committed by the Father to the Son. Judgment. Judgment? Skip, are you saying that I, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, will stand before God one day in judgment? Yes, I am. But, but listen very carefully. The judgment that you will face will not be the same kind that an unbeliever faces. In fact, I'll say it more plainly. You will never stand before God being judged for your sins because you have trusted that Jesus Christ died for your sins and that's once and for all. So if you have this picture that you're going to stand before God and he's going to say, okay, Gabriel, roll the videotape and here comes the whole tape of your life and you go, oh my goodness, I said that and now everybody knows it. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. You trust in Jesus and so because of that, you'll never face God for your sin. How do I know that? Verse 24 says it very plainly. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me. Do you believe in him who sent him? If you do, then it says you have everlasting life. Now watch this. And shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. What does Romans chapter 8 verse 1 say? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So, believers will not be judged to determine their eternal salvation. That's already done. But you and I will be judged to determine our eternal status. Our eternal status. We're going to stand before Jesus one day as believers in what Paul calls twice, once in Romans and once in Corinthians, the judgment seat of Christ. Ever heard that term, the judgment seat of Christ? For we must all, Paul said, stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, that judgment will be a judgment where we are evaluated by Christ. has nothing to do with our sins, but has everything to do with our service to him. Our serving the Lord while on this earth. And we will stand before him and receive a reward or the lack of a reward for the way we serve the Lord. If we did it faithfully, we did it from our heart. We didn't do it to be seen by people. 
will receive a reward. By the way, the term that I mentioned once in Romans and once in 2 Corinthians 5, the judgment seat of Christ, is the Greek word bematos or bima, as we like to say, the bema seat, the bematos. It means a raised step. Every Greek city had a bematos or a bema seat. This raised step was a place in town where um, speeches were given, laws were handed down. Also, in the Greek Olympic Games, when a runner ran the race or performed whatever function he did, if he won, he would stand on a platform. It's still done to this day because that's the bematos, the raised platform, the judgment seat. And there at the judgment seat, they would be given a reward for the way they ran or performed their sport. So we'll stand before Jesus to be rewarded for what we've done. Now, I don't want you to think that heaven's going to be some spiritual competition where, again, play the tape and we're all going to watch each other's works and this kind of stuff. And and uh, it's kind of a, a competition. We go, oh, really? You did that? Well, look, look what I just did. I heard about a preacher who died and he went to heaven and he noticed that in heaven there was a New York cab driver who had a higher reward and place in heaven than he did. And he got all upset and he said, Peter, I've been a preacher, man. I've given my whole life to my congregation and to serve the Lord. And Peter smiled and he said, well, you know, up here we reward on results. Now, preacher, whenever you would preach, face it, a lot of people fell asleep. But when people rode in that guy's taxi cab, they were always awake. Not only that, they prayed the whole time. (laughs) Well, it's not going to be like that. You will individually and I will be individually rewarded for what we did and how we did it in our service to Christ. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth or rust do not corrupt or destroy. Then also in Matthew 25, he gave a parable, the parable of the talents. Talents were bags of money. It was a parable on how we use our temporal resources to serve him. And those who were faithful, Jesus said, I will say to them, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. So here's how it works. When you die, you're going to heaven. But, please listen, until you go there, there's a job that God wants you to do on the earth. Find out what that is and do it. As one person said, heaven will be for enjoyment, but this is the time for employment. Serve him. C.T. Studd was right when he said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's the judgment we will face. Not a judgment for our sins. That's taken at the cross, but for our service. However, let's flip the coin. If you're not a Christian, then verse 24 doesn't apply to you because you don't believe in Him who was sent by the Father. And so you won't go from death into life. If you persist in your belief system as an unbeliever, you will go from death to death to death. You go from being spiritually dead, everybody's born that way, according to the Bible, spiritually dead and separated. 
to the second phase, you'll die, physical death, to the final phase, eternal death. Not death to life, but death to death. W.C. Fields was an actor back in the 1920s and 30s. He, was, he died before I was born. But I've watched his black and white flicks. He was the guy who talked like this all the time with a cigar. He'd always have that voice. Well, he was on his deathbed, and he was n- not a believer, never really cared for Christ or the Bible, but he had a Bible on his deathbed. His friend came in the room and said, What are you doing reading a Bible? And W.C. Fields said, I'm looking for loopholes. There are no loopholes except one, and his name is Jesus Christ. He's the only loophole God ever provided for the sin of the world. That's the only one you'll find. Everyone dies. Everyone will be evaluated. And finally, everyone rises. Verse 28 and 29. This mystifies a lot of people because a lot of people don't think of both believers and non-believers being raised physically from the dead. But the Bible teaches that. He says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear His voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Wow. Everyone rises. Now, I, I, I don't want to pressure understanding too much, but, but this will help. Some mistakenly believe, because of this verse and the word hour in this verse, there's coming an hour, and the word is ora in Greek, very similar to Spanish, that there will be one general resurrection that will happen at exactly the same time. That's the picture that a lot of people have in their minds of every human being standing in a huge crowd kind of waiting their turn to be judged. But Jesus makes a delineation between the resurrection for believers, the resurrection to life, and the resurrection for non-believers, what he calls the resurrection to condemnation. In fact, in Revelation chapter 20, we see that there are a thousand years between these two resurrections. That before the millennium, there will be a resurrection of physical bodies for the righteous dead. Then there's a thousand years. And after the thousand years are over, there is an evaluation and resurrection of the unrighteous dead. So, Contrary to what people believe, that after you die, you know, you just stop existing, there will be an evaluation and there will be a resurrection. Now, whenever I read or study about the resurrection for the believer, I get pretty excited. I get excited. A lot of people will say, well, Skip, why, why do we as believers need a physical resurrected body? Really? You're going to ask that? I mean, no, no disrespect, but have you seen yourself lately? I mean, we're not going in the right direction. We're going from whatever we are to much worse, and it will get worse as we get older and we degenerate and we slow down and we decay. We look in the mirror, but the hope is we will be changed. We're going to get a resurrected body. People say, well, what will it look like? My answer, a lot better. The new model will be a lot better. It's what Jesus calls in verse 29, the resurrection of life. So why do we need a resurrected body? It's pretty simple. Number one, to reverse 
the effect of original sin, which we see every day in our lives, in our physical bodies. And number two, because the future environment demands it. There's going to be a physically renewed earth called the millennial kingdom, the Bible teaches. And that will require a physically resurrected body. After the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, there's what's called the eternal state, new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, and it's eternal. That will require not this, but an eternal body. So because of that, there will be a resurrection to life. But notice that last phrase that we close with. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now that's for the unbeliever. And I want to close with a passage. Would you turn to Revelation chapter 20? And we'll see how all this plays out as we close. Revelation chapter 20. I'm having you turn there, though it's not my favorite chapter. Trust me. It is the most sobering scene in all of the Bible. It's a courtroom scene. But it's very different from a human courtroom, an earthly courtroom. Because here in Revelation 20, we have a judge. That's Christ, according to Jesus. There's a judge, but there's no jury. He's the judge and the jury. There is a sentence, but there is no appeal. There is a punishment, but there is no escape. It's a very, very sad scene. Revelation 20, let's look at verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Verse 7, Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. Go down to verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face... The earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So the Bible teaches two events. They're separated by a thousand years, but two events. The resurrection of believers... The righteous dead, resurrection of life. The resurrection of unbelievers, the unrighteous dead, the resurrection of condemnation. It's pretty sobering, isn't it? Now, what I'm about to say is even more sobering. Here's a question, and then I'll answer it. Why do unbelievers need a physical resurrected body? I understand why believers need it, but why do unbelievers need it? Well, it's very similar, actually, but with a twist. Just as believers require a physically resurrected body to enjoy all of eternal bliss, so the unbeliever will require a physical resurrected body to endure all of the punishment of the future. 
It's a very sad and sobering thought. Now listen carefully. Here's the big point I want you to get. This is why churches exist and preach the gospel. This is why missionaries go overseas. This is why people have radio and television programs and books. This is why. To get the message of Jesus Christ out so that people will choose him and enjoy the resurrection of life. That's why. I read a statistic the other day that I found shocking. I'm not quite sure I believe it, but it was a poll that was taken. So I believe at least in part what I'm about to tell you. According to one poll, four out of every five Americans, and I'm quoting, agree that we will all be called before God at Judgment Day to answer for our sins. Is that hard to believe? Four out of five Americans believe that? Question, what are they doing about that? If they really believe that, as the poll says, what are they going to answer them? If they're going to stand before God to answer them, what are they going to answer? Uh, sorry? Oops? Or are they going to say, I'm confident because I trusted in Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis wrote a fabulous set of books called The Chronicles of Narnia. There are seven volumes in it. The very last book is called The Last Battle. And toward the end of the book, and I'll close with this, toward the end of the book, Aslan, the lion, representing Christ, tells Peter and Edmund and Lucy that there has been a railroad accident and that they are dead. Now listen to how it ends. And as Aslan spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and so beautiful that I cannot even write about them. And for us, this is the end of the stories And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. Their life in this world, all of their adventures in Narnia, had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and ever in which every chapter is better than the one before. Isn't that great? Every chapter is better than the one before. This morning, if you're not saved, your best days are behind you. If you're saved, your best days are ahead of you. I know there's a book out called Your Best Life Now. It's wrong. This isn't it. The best is yet to come. The chapter of the unfolding is yet to come. If you're an unbeliever, the best is behind you. The worst is yet to come. It didn't have to happen that way. It didn't have to end that way. That's why churches do what they do and missionaries and evangelists do what they do to persuade men and women to commit their lives to Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is the most important business in all of the world. This is your business. As Heavenly Father, and we adopted sons and daughters of God by faith in Jesus Christ, this is family business. And we pray for men and women who up till now have considered Jesus but have not committed to Jesus. 
We hear the words. They're very plain. We read the words. They're very, very plain. They're unmistakable who Jesus claimed to be and what he said he will do to every person. That he will be the one who will render final verdicts. That he will be the one who will call and all who are in the graves will rise up. But not all to the resurrection of life. Some to the resurrection of condemnation. Lord, while we are alive and we hear, we have the ability to make a choice. I know our minds could go in a million different places, like what about the people who don't hear? But that's really not the issue this morning. We have heard, and now we are responsible. Lord, I pray that some would choose Christ, choose to believe, choose to be counted in that resurrection of life. As we close this morning and as you're thinking about decisions you have made, I wonder if you can honestly and confidently say, I know unswervingly with great confidence what Jesus has done on the cross for me is enough and I know that if I were to die or when I die, I will be in his presence. I will go to heaven. If you can't say that, If you're saying, boy, I I would like to believe that, I would like to know that, I would like to have that kind of unswerving confidence in Him. But my life hasn't been lived for Him. I haven't devoted my life to Christ. I've never invited Him in personally as Savior or Lord. I want to give you the opportunity to do that as we close this morning. As our heads are bowed, if you have that desire to have your sins forgiven and to be granted, as Jesus said, everlasting life by believing in Him. If you want that experience, I want you to raise your hand up. Just keep it up for a moment so I can acknowledge you and we'll close and I'll close praying for you. Raise your hand. If you have not yet accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, and as your Lord, but you want to do that, just raise it up in the air. You're saying, Skip, pray for me this morning. I need to do that. I want to do that this morning. Father, for those with those hands raised, you alone know the heart, you know the depths, you know the life, you know the suffering, you know the pain, you know the questions. We pray for them now. We know you love them. We know your plan for them is perfect and awesome. And I pray that right where they are, they would say yes to the Lord of life and enjoy life from their Lord. If you raise your hand, would you just, right where you're sitting, give your life to Christ? Say this from your heart. Lord, I give you my life. I know that I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. I trust that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, that he shed his blood for my sin. I turn from my past, I turn from my sin, and I turn my life over to you. I make you my Savior. I want to live for you as my Lord. Fill me with your Spirit and help me to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org.
If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you, and God bless.